welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Devin Dito, along with my co-host, Adrian Guest, and we are back at it again with another edition of the Weekly Roundup series. This is Weekly Roundup number nine. Today is March 19th, 2022, and we are back again to bring you more news from around the world, but also back here at home. So as always, Adrian, we have a ton of news to get to, some of it funny, you know, we like to spice it up here at the Black Agenda, so make sure you stick with us throughout this entire show. We will make sure to keep you informed, but also keep you laughing. So let's jump into our first segment here, and we're going to start with Uber. So if you use Uber to get around, or if you order food from it, or if you drive for Uber, get ready to see some higher prices uh, for those who are ordering through the app. So citing record high prices for gasoline, Uber has announced it is charging customers a new fuel fee to help offset costs for ride hail and delivery drivers. And so this temporary surcharge would be either 45 cents or 55 cents for each Uber trip and either 35 cents or 45 cents for each Uber Eats order. And this depends on the location. And so the company announced this on Friday. So, yeah, Adrian, I mean, I think this is really just a sign of the times. You know, it was only a matter of time before those higher fuel costs get handed down to the customers. And in this case, Uber is not immune to that. You know, the Uber, Uber drivers definitely feel the higher prices at the pump. So as someone who has driven for Uber, I welcome this change, although it sucks, though, for people who order on the apps because it's already expensive. This is just going to make it more expensive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's it's true. Uh, I saw a report, I think, where uh, gas right now nationally is about like four twenty seven a gallon or something. I mean, it's expensive. So like you said, it's just Uber kind of going with the times and unfortunately got to pay more. I'm, you know, I, I just realized that, you know, whenever I use Uber, it is more expensive. So I maybe they've already started tacking that on because um, I'm which um, I'm saying it now, so I don't know. But to take us to another story, this is about Kim Kardashian. This is a report from the Grio. Kim Kardashian has given some advice to women in business, and that advice was to work hard. Uh, the writer of this article says that that advice is some sort of upper-class snobbery, the rich scalding the poor for failing to become rich because they're not trying hard enough. It's self-congratulating mechanism is what the author says of this article. It says, I'm rich because I've worked hard, and it's conveniently ignoring the fact that in America, acquiring wealth often requires the help of a wealthy parent. And obviously, Kim Kardashian benefited from you know a wealthy parent. We all kind of know that. Um, the second part of Kim's uh, soliloquy included this gem that's coming among the clueless set. And then again, this is what the author said. Um, this is Kim's words. It seems like nobody wants to work these days. Um, this is an age-old class warfare. The rich, again, scalding the poor for not working hard enough with no clue about how hard it is to become rich or how expensive it is to be poor. Which I, I saw that last little part, you know, hard it is to become rich, expensive it is to be poor. I was like, man, that's I almost want to slap that on a T-shirt and like start to sell that because that's, you know, that's a really good statement. Because, you know, listeners, if as you I mean, unless you're somebody that's in the one percent, it does feel expensive to be, you know, 
poor or, you know, without certain things. I mean, it's because it just feels like you're having to, you know, whenever you think about $4.25 a gallon gas or whatever, if you were someone that was making half a million a year, I mean, that didn't really affect you. It's, it's, you know, it's poor people who are having to, to blunt this. But to kind of go back to what, you know, she was saying about this, you need to just work hard. I mean, I get maybe where she was coming from, just saying have a good work ethic. But I also feel that you can't just say work hard and you're going to get there because there's a chance that you might not. There's a chance that there's barriers to entry in whatever industry you're going in. Uh, there might be high taxes, high licensing fees. I mean, there's a lot of different things here that prevent people from accomplishing their dreams than just them not having the ability to work hard. So I definitely get why uh, the author of this article um, said that she was given some uh, snobbery and some, uh, <laughs> some, some uh, stuff <laughs> that just doesn't really fit well. No, it doesn't. I mean, it's, you know, I guess <laughs> now I'm not going to say that Kim didn't work hard for what she has, but we know this, and I think Kim knows this as well. You know, if if it just only took hard work, we'd all be rich. Every single one of one of us would be a millionaire. Uh, but we know that that doesn't work like that. We have a class in here in America called the working poor. Like they're working very hard. They're just working for less than what they would have gotten back, you know, thirty years ago because everything else has gotten more expensive, but their wages just haven't moved. So we have to acknowledge that reality where being poor now, yes, is being is is different from being poor in the 1950s and 60s. It looks different, but it's still this you're still poor. Like poverty, you know, you may have a cell phone, you may have a vehicle, you may have a house with you know such air and heat and still be poor. Be still be working class poor and struggling. So we have to stop, you know, talking about people and just scolding people and saying, well, you know, it seems like nobody wants to work these days. I think people want to work. The pandemic showed us that you can say what you want, but people got off the couch and they went back to work when they deemed they thought it was safe for them to work without, you know, lower risk of, of catching COVID. So it's, it's just it bugs me when they say this because it's not how Kim got to where she is. It wasn't just hard work. <laughs> she got some help along the way from some people who are very wealthy. So it's like poor people don't have those connections. I think the art, the article mentioned uh, her dad. I think his name was Robert. Whenever he passed away, left like a yeah. hundred million dollar trust, you know, to the kids and stuff. So I'm like, you know, if you've got a hundred, like I even read a report, um, rather not a report, but a quote from someone who was in that wealth class. And they were like, you know, once you make that much money, it's, it's easy to make more money. It's mm -hmm. like, it's hard to get there, but going from a hundred million to 200 million is, is nothing. Not hard, I mean, it's, yeah. so it's, I mean, it's hard, but it's different from trying to get to <laughs> zero to a million, you know, it's like right. getting from zero to a million can seem nearly impossible, but from a million to say two or three or four or 20 million, not really because you have a million dollars to work with, to invest and, and, you know, buy, you can get there. It's a much easier jumping off path path than say coming from, you know, working poor to making your way up to uh, the status of a Kim Kardashian. 
That's why we, it's so rare to see it. <laughs> That's so what we say. It's the 1%. And then there's a 1% of the 1%. So it's right. like. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that for a reason. No, I think it's just, it's an attitude that people who get up there, you know, it's like, we're not going to give you the blueprint to how to get here. We're just going to say you should just work hard, which we all know is a, a fallacy. So We'll move on from there and go on to our next story here, and it's about uh, Texas and mail-in ballots. So according to the Associated Press analysis, an an analysis that they published on Wednesday, Texas rejected nearly 23,000 mail ballots for its March 1st primary under its new voting law. So that amounts to 13% of the mail-in ballots when the typical rejection rate is less than 2%. The rejected ballots were also disproportionately higher in Democratic-leaning counties, with 15% compared to nine. nine so 15% of the Democratic-leaning counties had their ballots rejected versus 9% in Republican counties. And Harris County, where Houston is located, had the most ballots thrown out. Election officials said most of the rejections stemmed from a failure of voters to adhere to the new identification requirements. So... Adrian, you know, this was one of the concerns when Texas passed this law. And so you're kind of seeing it playing out, although some some people may say 23,000 ballots doesn't sound like that much. But it does matter in the grand theme, grand theme of things. When you go all the way down to the local level, even 100 ballots can make a difference. Yeah, I mean, that's. I remember just looking at like my mayoral race, which I know you poor is only like 3000 population, but I mean, there were only like, I think less than a thousand people that voted. So like a hundred ballots or so does, I mean, that's 10% of the vote. I mean, it's, it does really make a difference when you've got that kind of stuff going on. And again, you know, this is kind of response to, you know, all of the legislation that was passed in Texas to kind of go against making it easier for people to vote. And I just I just wish people would just realize that voter fraud is very, very, very rare in cases where it's happened. It's been shown where it's more Republicans and Democrats and it's, you know, that's doing it. Uh, and people just need to realize that voting should be easy in our country. It shouldn't be difficult. So, uh, man, I can't wait till we get into politics and lobbying and we can actually change these things. But uh, until then, we're going to go to another story. And this is out of North Carolina, where a school district is offering a vague response to reports that some black students at J.S. Water School, a K-8 through campus in Gold uh, Goldston, where uh, classmates were apparently sold at a mock slave auction, which I just don't get why they would ever do this. Uh, but it says days before one mother shared on Facebook that her son experienced a slave auction by his classmates. And when he opened up, we were made aware that this type of stuff seems to be the norm so much that he didn't think it was worth sharing. The mother, Ashley Palmer, wrote on Facebook in March that her son shared that, quote, his friends went for 350 and another student was a slave master because, quote, he knew how to handle them. And I'm just like, wh- like, why? Like, who th- who thought that this, like, I get how teaching civil rights, you know, maybe you're trying to think, how can I have an engaging, interactive way to teach about slavery and things like that? But having a slave auction, I mean, that just, that just sounds <clears throat> terrible. Yeah, I mean, it, it just... I don't understand this country's obsession 
with needing to reenact things surrounding slavery because we would never do this with any anything related to like the Holocaust. Like you would not have anyone, hey, let's go do a mock, you know, Jewish camp that was controlled by Nazis. Like nobody on, on earth would do that. But that we allow this type of stuff when it comes to slavery because we don't really care. Like we just think we can enact, you know, reenact slavery and talk about it in ways that are offensive to black people. And we just expect us to get over it, basically, is how the nation treats it. Whereas you cannot do this with the things that happen to Jews in Nazi Germany. We just don't allow you don't even, it. <laughs> you don't even see like a trail of tears type thing with no. like Native Americans or something like that, you know, you know, or, or, or Japanese internment camps or something like that. You don't, you don't even see anything like that. No, you don't, you don't need to mock. You don't need to do reenactments to understand what those things did to those people and the effects that it had on them. But for some reason, we feel the need to do this with slavery. And it just is disrespectful, honestly, to every black person in the country. Um, because it's just ridiculous and it would not be allowed <laughs> if we were another hue. Uh, but we're moving on from that story to our next one here. We're going to talk about Wells Fargo here. So a recent report from Fortune notes that as interest rates dropped during the coronavirus pandemic, many homeowners started to take advantage and lower their mortgage rates. However, that report finds that only 47% of black home black home loan refinancing applicants at Wells Fargo were approved in 2020 compared to 72% of white applicants. And this is according to data examined by Bloomberg News. So the report notes that while white applicants fared better at all of the major banks, it was only Wells Fargo that denied more applicants, more black applicants than it than it approved. Additionally, Bloomberg writes that Wells Fargo's approval rates for the lowest income white families were nearly the same as their their rates of approval for high income black families. So the, they have the same approval rates for low income white families versus high income black families which high-income family meaning they earn at least 168000 annually. However, when comparing lower-income black and white applicants, both earning a maximum of 63000 a year, the approval rates were nearly double for whites. And so benefits of refinancing your home include lowering your monthly payment, building equity faster, improving your credit score, cashing out refinance loans, or even paying your mortgage off sooner. So you know, Adrian, when we talked about home ownership last year, we talked about how important that was, how it was a key building block when you're talking about building wealth and not only building it, but being able to pass it along. But it's just the same story we keep finding. Like I keep going back to Dr. Gale when we talked about taxes and he kept saying, whenever you look under the hood and you look for a disparity between races and how we're treated, we always find these sorts of disparities. And I think it's, you know, it's the proof is in the pudding. I mean, I mean, I don't know how you explain how the lowest income white families have the same approval rates as a high income black family. Like, I just, I don't understand how you square that peg and say, there's nothing wrong. 
Like there's no <laughs> discrimination. We have no problems. Maybe those high income black families just don't have good credit scores. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, maybe they think it's just coincidence. Uh, you know, I just it's a happenstance. <laughs> that's right. It's just you know the data just points to that, but we didn't make it happen. It's just it, it, when I saw the report, I, that's why I wanted to put it here because it's one of those things to where. People think racism is like is is it's like slavery or Jim Crow, but no, racism is in the institutions that we see in America, and we've been saying that since June 2020, uh, listeners. We've been talking about this since day one when we said we need to eradicate racism. We talked about the institutions, and this is another institution, you know, banking and housing, and I mean, it's those are two different institutions, but they go hand in hand, so. Another story to prove our point here. Um, we're not making this up. This isn't just two guys from Mississippi just talking. This is real stuff affecting real people. And like Devin said, clearly you shouldn't equate the poorest of whites to the wealthiest of blacks. I mean, that just just sounds terrible. But um, we're not going to end on anything terrible. We're going to go to something positive. On Monday, the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for more revival, which is PPC-NCMR, held its first in-person march and rally in Cleveland, Ohio, the first of several planned marches in nine other states in preparation for a major event this summer in Washington. And Devin, this is an interesting thing about Ohio, and I guess maybe the reason why they started in Ohio, uh, Reverend Barber noted that 41% of the state's residents are considered poor and low-wage earners. And he also was clear to note that while people of color were most affected by poverty, a staggering number of whites in the state also suffer under the weight of poverty. William William Barber II's command of the mission and focus on the numbers highlighted the group's intent of getting their issues heard by members of Congress to hopefully advance policies that will close the poverty gap. One can only hope, Devin, that we can close the poverty gap here in America. Again, listeners, we said the 1% and there's the 1% of the 1% and then there's just the 99% of us who are putting uh, ends to, together and trying to make ends meet. So there you go, listeners. Our first segment, uh, a week roundup number nine. We hope you are enjoying it, but we got to let you go, let you listen to some music, take a break, get a drink, whatever you need to do, but make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give a few dollars while you're at it. After all, the Black Agenda Podcast is supported by listeners like you. Now let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. We're getting into our second segment. We wanted to give a couple of quick updates here. This is about the Crime Act. The United States House of Representatives on Friday passed the Crown Act, a bill that provides federal protection against hair discrimination. The bill primarily intended to combat the racial discrimination of black hairstyles passed mostly along Democratic lines with a vote of 235 to 189. The bill has yet to pass the Senate. Another update, President Barack Obama, rather former President Barack Obama, said that he had tested positive for COVID, though he's feeling relatively healthy, and his wife, Michelle, tested negative. He said on Twitter, quote, I've had a scratchy throat for a couple days, but I'm feeling fine otherwise. Pray for the former president. Make sure he gets a good recovery. To end our quick updates, Jesse Smollett was released from jail Wednesday 
hours after Illinois State Appellate Court ruled he could go free while his lawyers appeal his conviction for staging a hate crime. Smollett had been behind bars for six days where lawyers said he had not eaten and had not consumed any, or rather had not eaten and only consumed ice water. I think he was on some sort of fast maybe, but uh, that's a little quick updates for you listeners. Uh, Just some quick little news that we were covering maybe a little bit earlier, but wanted to let you know about what's going on right now. Exactly. And moving on to another story we brought you earlier last week, uh, basketball star uh, Brittany Griner looks like she's going to be in Russia for a little bit longer. So a Russian court announced Thursday that the uh, basketball star Brittany Griner would be detained until May 19th. And this is, of course, according to Russian state news agency TASS or T-A-S-S. So Moscow's uh, Kimki court told TASS it was granting the request of the investigation and extended the period of detention for Griner. Um, and TASS also quoted a source from Russia's Public Monitoring Commission, which has access to prisons, who said that Griner was sharing a cell with two other inmates, but that her six foot inch frame was too tall for the standard jail bed. Griner has reportedly ordered books and she has ordered a biography of the Rolling Stones and uh, another book as well. So at least she seems to be doing okay, Adrian, but looks as though she's not at least, I don't know if that means she's going to be released on May 19th, but at least she's going to be detained until May 19th. So she's got at least another couple of months um, to sit in Russia and the war still rages on in Ukraine. So it does not look like she's going to be getting out um, anytime soon. Yeah, Devin, that's true. At least we can hope that she's not going to be harmed because she's not in Ukraine and she's not, you know, getting bombed, unfortunately, like they are. So we hope that there's some sort of resolution here uh, that gets her back and that helps Ukrainian people and puts uh, Putin in his place. So we can only hope for something, a hat trick, I guess. But to take us to another story, let's go to the state of Tennessee, a uh, place I used to live in. But let's talk about a city that I didn't live in, the city of Mason, who is having their finances being taken over by the state. Uh, Mason is a mostly black town of about 1,500 people. Uh, they're being taken over, like I said, with their finances by the state due to claims of poor financial management. On Thursday, Tennessee's comptroller Jason Mumpower announced the official financial takeover of Mason after Mason's board of mayor and aldermen voted not to surrender the town's 153-year-old charter. Action 5 News reported on this. The city has a long history of financial issues, including a past indictment for theft of town funds. Seating out, seating over control of Mason to Tennessee government officials would place the mostly black, heavily Democratic town under the control of the state's primarily white and Republican-led Tipton County, as noted by the t- Tennessee Lookout. Mason officials believe this recent takeover is, rel- is related to the town's convenient location, 4.5 miles from the newly planned Blue Oval City, the four electric truck and Uh, the four electric truck and battery plant that's been deemed one of the largest manufacturing investments in the state's history. So uh, that's an interesting story, David. I'm glad that you're bringing this to the light of our uh, listenership and the black agenda. Um, I've seen takeovers of the state with school districts where school districts are underperforming and the state comes in and takes them over. Uh, I didn't know states did that with cities who had like financial uh, mismanagement, but uh, that's an interesting story. Uh, Listeners, hopefully um, they've, you know, 
they're going to do this with good intent and not as this article is saying with white Republican led influence on a black heavily democratic town. Exactly. I mean, just that headline will get your attention. And just to add a tidbit to that story, uh, the NAACP, I think it may be the Memphis chapter, um, has said that the the real problem with it is that they did not give the town like benchmarks to meet in order to get this takeover, you know, to get this undone, basically. So that's the worry is that this could go on forever or, you know, for quite a while. Uh, but we'll move on from there. And of course, we'll update you um, as that story develops. But to move on to Georgia, where the House of Representatives in Georgia has cleared the way for a bill that would give exonerated former inmates from 50000 to 100000 for each year that they wrongly spent in jail. And this is according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The bill, HB House Bill 1354, would also appoint a panel to analyze the compensation requests of those who were wrongly convicted and set guidelines to determine who would qualify for payments. And so um, in Georgia, exonerated former inmates must actually ask government officials for compensatory damages. And then other states have vastly different rules when it comes to compensating wrongly convicted inmates. I think we talked about this on this one on the show. There was a case in Missouri of an inmate named Kevin Strickland who was exonerated in November after he spent 43 years in prison for murder. And he was not compensated for that because his conviction wasn't overturned by DNA evidence. He did not qualify for a payment from the state. And he had to actually go open a GoFundMe where he got uh, where he actually was able to raise over one point seven million dollars. So, um, Adrian, I think this is hopefully this bill passes the Senate and gets on um, and becomes law, because I do think, you know, as someone who who gets wrongly convicted. I mean, you're talk you're taking away this person's life, you're taking away the possible earnings. They deserve something. They should not have to ask the state for, "Hey, I need you to reimburse me for the years you took away from me." This should be given, especially if the state did not do its due diligence in making sure that this person was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. I think the least we could do is give them some sort of payment. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the very least. Uh, I mean, I just don't understand how, you know, a state would deny someone money for a wrongful conviction when they've spent especially 43 years or any amount of years in prison. Um, so, yeah, hats off to Georgia for passing this. You know, it's sometimes like there's certain states I'm iffy on, you know, because of their leadership and the decisions they've made. But sometimes it's like people have, you know, woke up a little bit. Um, uh, I actually, I probably shouldn't say woke because Ron DeSantis is probably listening. He would get upset with me or something. But, um, you know, <laughs> I guess we need to. <laughs> Yeah, we need. <laughs> yeah, I know. We need to um, definitely do things like this for our formerly incarcerated, because, like Devin said, listeners, you know, the system strips away a lot of their opportunities, a lot of their privilege, and and honestly, is, is money really enough to you know equate to having years of your life stripped away? No, it's it's not. But at least it's some sort of sentiment to say, "Hey, pick up where you you know where we left off, and you know do something with it." But I guess I'll get off of my high horse, <laughs> and I'll talk about somebody else who's about to get on a high horse with the federal government. 
uh, Mr. Kevin uh, Chambers. Uh, he's the federal government's new head prosecutor for fraud within the vast COVID-19 relief program, quote, will lead the charge against major perpetrators of pandemic fraud, report saying. According to NBC News, Chambers was named chief prosecutor for COVID-19 fraud on Thursday by the Department of Justice. During the March 10th meeting, Chambers said, quote, people bought vacation homes, Bentleys and Rolexes. Man, which I would have applied for some money. Now. <laughs> oh, now I, I, I know Mr. Chambers would be after me. Uh, so far, federal prosecutors have, quote, brought more than a thousand criminal cases related to fraud. Uh, fraud losses of over one billion. Wow, that's a lot of money. NBC has been reporting on this. Silver cases have been filed against eighteen hundred people in relation to over six billion in fraudulent loans. Additionally, Chambers said he has plans to set up strike forces of analysts, agents, and prosecutors to sort through a massive amount of data supplied by state unemployment offices. Oh man, they're going after even oh, unemployment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 that last part is what gets you. <laughs> I tell you what, you know, I know this isn't a discussion topic, but man, uh, you know, you might want to discuss this with some of your family listeners if you got some people who, you know, abuse the system because I know that there's some people out there. They wouldn't have put, you know, they wouldn't have hired a black person to go and lead the charge. Maybe they think black people are the main perpetrators. <laughs> well, it's good. <laughs> Well, you can't say it's the white man that's coming back to take your money. In this case, it's a black man. So I don't know. <laughs> I just, you know, hey, like you say, if you if you took some of that money last year, you got your little PP, PPP loan, you got you some unemployment benefits. That's a lot. $7 billion total in, in these fraud losses. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And more and more to come. So if you fudge your numbers last year, just... Get your ducks in a row. Get ready. <laughs> but, hey, if you're fudging, you better go ahead and open that business real quick. <laughs> you better. Because they finna come take it all. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, we will update you as Mr. Chambers gets to work. Um, and the reason this is all happening is President Biden actually said it during his State of the Union speech that they were going to go after the PPP fraudsters and things like that. So they are... They're coming. The watchdogs are here. So, folks, just just get your papers in order. <laughs> That's all we can say. Uh, but we'll move on to our next story here, where uh, more people than ever qualify for expanded tax credits this year. And current the current earned income tax credit and the child tax credit expansion benefits could play an important role in reducing poverty and the racial wealth gap. And so, The expansion of the earned income tax credit benefits more than 17 million workers in the U.S. not raising children at home. So, yes, you could qualify for the EITC even if you don't have children. Yet the problem here is that one in five of all workers eligible for the EITC don't take advantage of this benefit each year. And this is probably because they're unaware. And this results in billions of dollars in unclaimed benefits with so many new eligible workers this year, it's really help, really important that we get the word out about who qualifies for uh, these tax credits and making sure that you are claiming them. And so, Adrian, I wanted to put this story in here because we, I know we talked about the use of the tax code to fight against poverty. You know, we talked about the expansion of the child tax credit in the event, you know, 
working in advanced payments as well and how that was able to actually cut, you know, I think it was child poverty in half. And so I think this is something, you know, that should be permanent. We have to look at other ways of using the tax code to help those who need the money most. And um, I know for one, I work at a tax company, so I knew that the EITC was expanding. I didn't qualify for it, but I would definitely encourage anyone, if you haven't filed yet, definitely just at least go and do the calculator and see if you qualify for the earned income tax credit. But if, but if anything, Adrian, I think last year during the pandemic showed us that we can use the tax code to actually do some good work. I know it sounds weird. <laughs> Usually people hate the tax code. But I think in this way, when you're talking about expanding the uh, child tax credit, making those payments advanceable, I think you could do a lot of good work just like we showed it. We got proof. Now we have to make this permanent, I think. That is really the next step to me. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I um, I was looking at the IRS's website for basic qualifications of using the EITC and it says, you know, you've worked and earned income under $57,414, have investment income below 10000 have a valid Social Security number, be a U.S. citizen or resident alien, and not file a Form 2555. So if you meet those qualifications or if you know people who meet those, inform them to kind of check into that. Uh, I know when I did my taxes, I got a nice refund. I don't know if I got that. Maybe I think I got something because I was a student and maybe it said that was the mm-hmm. best deduction for me versus um, any of the other ones. But, you know, definitely check into this. You know, I don't know, listeners, if you file your taxes through TurboTax or however you do it, but whatever you do, check on these different deductions. It might be worth it to pay somebody to make sure you're getting the most out of your tax return this year. But we're not going to end on taxes because um, taxes, we can make it cool and hip, but that's not what we want to end on. We're going to end on something a little better than that. Gas prices have inspired another charitable giveaway, this time in Chicago, where entrepreneur and former mayoral candidate Willie Wilson gave away $200,000 worth of gasoline on Thursday, according to the Chicago Tribune. Wilson made the distributions at 10 pre-selected gas stations early yesterday morning, starting at 7 a.m., where lined-up motorists were allowed to fill up their tanks with up to $50 in gas, first come, first serve, until his maximum charitable amount was reached. He plans to hold another gas giveaway at the end of the month. You know, listeners, it's interesting how we started off the news talking about gas prices, and now we're ending our news talking about gas prices. Man, new, you know, it's crazy how gas affects so much. Um, but we're not going to end the show talking about gas prices. Um, we've got a couple of other things that we're going to get to, a couple of other stories that we didn't get to mention. Um, but you should check it out. There's a black lady who claims that she wasn't able to get an interview with Delta Airlines until she pretended to be white. Um, really interesting thing. Uh, she did a TikTok video about that. Check that out. And Howard's adjunct faculty. They're actually about to go on strike because they're not getting compensated enough. So if you want to go check those two stories out, but we're going to give you a break and we're going to go to our quick hits after that break. So make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, IG and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. 
Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our quick hits. Uh, to start us off here, uh, Herschel Walker, a Republican running for U.S. Senate, shared a common myth Sunday about the theory of evolution while campaigning at a church in Georgia. Quote, at one time, science said man came from apes, did it not? If that is true, why are there still apes? Think about it. And this is from uh, Walker, the Trump-backed candidate. It's unclear if the former college and professional football star misunderstands the theory of evolution or if he intentionally got it wrong to connect with potential voters in the congregation. In fact, the theory of evolution does not say that that humans evolved from apes. Uh, Cambridge University science historian John Van Waya, uh, he said this, Darwin, uh, Charles Darwin said that monkeys, apes, and humans must have come from a common ancestor because of our great similarities compared to other species. He explained that dispelling the myth that common ancestor apparently maybe died about 10,000 years ago. Of course, Twitter, you know, had to rail walk a little bit. Uh, somebody uh, tweeted that Walker's got an IQ test on Tuesday, November 8th, 2022. <laughs> if you don't know, listeners, that's election day when he's going to hopefully go against uh, <laughs> Reverend Warnock. So interesting, wow. uh, Devin, you know, if you're going to quote, you know, science and theories and all that kind of stuff, like make sure you know what it's about. Like, don't just try to appeal to the Christian people to be like, you know, the Bible says, you know, man came from this. Don't try to, you know, play into that and then say, well, science is wrong. You don't even know what science is talking about. Yeah, I I, I think in this case, he probably is intentionally saying this wrong. And I've heard this repeated too. one of my favorite comedians, Cat Williams, said the very same thing on stage about evolution and how is it possible we came from, you know, apes and they're still here and things like that. I mean, people just completely just don't understand it like they do critical race theory and they tend to just run with it. So I'm not <laughs> we surprised, know how that is. you know, right. So we, we, we see how they're treating CRT. So not surprised. Um, good Lord. Yes. I hope, hopefully he fails that IQ test on Tuesday. November 8th. I think he will, but that's just my gut feeling. <laughs> but <laughs> we'll move on from there and go to our next story here where there is a, a Czech zoo that has welcomed a critically endangered Eastern black rhinoceros baby that has taken the name of Ukraine's capital of Kiev and in honor of that country's resistance to invading Russian forces. So the rhino baby was born early on March 4th in the Dvor. Kralov Zoo, which is a rare occurrence for the facility, even if it has the most rhinos belonging to the subspecies. And so the the zoo director said, quote, the name is another expression of our support for the Ukrainian heroes. Um, Poaching has reduced the number of the eastern black rhinos living in the wild to around 800. And the Czech park has 14. So only three other such rhinos have been born in other zoos around the world in the last year. So I thought that was kind of cool, Adrian, that they named it after Ukraine's capital city of Kyiv to show their support for what is happening. And I think it really just shows just how far reaching the support is for what is happening in Ukraine. A lot of people, I think it's really unprecedented to see the entire world get behind one country. 
um, and, and, you know, trying to support them in any way possible. And even by naming a rhino after the capital city. That's kind of cool. I know. It's like some rhino power against uh, Russia or something. It's, you know. <laughs> they need to send uh, a rhino to go run over Putin or something. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I know. You know it's, <laughs> we can only uh, we can only hope because this issue has got to be resolved. Somebody was like, how long is this thing going to go on? Uh, I was like, God, I, I hope it ends by May so that I can continue working with my illustrator. But um that's that's a selfish reason. So, <laughs> <Let's>, <laughs> I do hope the best for the Ukrainian people, for the most part, or not for the most part, but for for seriousness. And I do hope the best for the Russian people. It's just Putin that's being the butthole. But let's go to a different hole and talk about ears because um, they have holes too. But um, <laughs> and. Um, I, <laughs> No comment. That I know. It's like, hey, listen, we're trying to. I'm, I'm, I'm practicing my transition, so you got to you know, get used to it. Some of them are really smooth and good, you know, like John Roman, uh, Doctor John oh, said, is, uh, John K. Roman said, uh, and some of them are like that, where I'm just reaching and trying. But we're gonna go to Mike Tyson. Uh, Mike Tyson is releasing a line of edible gummies. The gummies are shaped like ears, a reference to his fight with Evander Holyfield. Tyson's cannabis brand, Tyson 2.0, Undisputed Cannabis, is behind the edibles called Mike Bites. <laughs> not, <laughs> not only, <laughs> Perfect not name. only does Edna is definitely really good. Not only does the packaging feature an ear, but the edibles are shaped like an ear with the piece missing. <laughs> the company released an image of the project on its official Twitter page on Tuesday. It will be available at dispensaries in California, Nevada, and Massachusetts. According to NBC News, the former heavyweight champ gave his stamp of approval for the gummies, tweeting, quote, these ears taste good. You know, if anybody knows what ears should taste like, Mike Tyson knows. And, you know, if they taste good to Mike Tyson, they must taste good to everybody else. So I need to, I guess, go back to my um, other state of California so I can get some of these gummies. You try you try them out for us and report back. You know, I will tell you, gummies <laughs> generally do not work on me. I've I've had a lot of gummies and they just they don't really do the trick. So Mike Tyson right. better have some heavyweight champ, you know, size gummies for me. You know, he better shoot. <laughs> I want some Mike bites. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because it literally the name is literally what he you know Mike bites. Like he bites people, and then you also have Mike bites, like bite sized gummies. <laughs> so I like the name. Great name, whoever came up with that. Exactly. Um, but we'll move to our next quick hit. And so my last two quick hits, listeners, are going to be sports related because you know it's March, which means March Madness is here and it's in full swing. And so I'm going to have two stories related to that. So my first one is going to be about how the Indiana cheerleaders saved the day. Um, during the first round game on Thursday. So the game was between number five, the five seed St. Mary's and the 12 seed Indiana St. Mary's won. Uh, but the game was actually delayed in the second half when the ball became stuck on top of the backboard at the Moda Center in Portland. And so when all the tall players failed to reach the trapped ball, even an official got on the chair and grabbed one of the, the sweeping uh, brooms that they used to wipe the floors. He held the pole up and still couldn't reach the, the ball. So the arena had to turn to the cheerleaders 
who actually had to save the day. So up the girl went and they pushed her up. She came, she grabbed the ball and it looked flawlessly easy. I mean, they made it look really easy. Like, you know, they watched the whole team try and they couldn't get it. And what made it even better was that the TBS play-by-player, play-by-play announcer, Andrew Catalong, actually called it as if it was a great play. So he was like, what a play. He was like, the cheerleader saves the day. And that is her one shiny moment. (laughs) This place is on its feet. (laughs) He really, like, got into it like it was a great moment um, in in the game, which it was. But just wanted to bring that cool moment that happened at the game yesterday. The cheerleaders... You know, a lot of people say maybe, you know, why do we need them? Maybe this is why we do. They come and save the day when you least expect it. <laughs> you know, I can take a little extra pride. Um, so I see, it, you know, it was a, a Hoosier cheerleader. It was. And, uh, Ball State, you know, we're called the Hoosiers at times as well. So, you know, I guess <laughs> I can, you know, take a little bit of pride in, in that and send it. That's, that's a part of me, I guess, now that I'm. Ball State's my uh, alumni, uh, or I'm an alumni of Ball State, rather. But um, my story, and this is my last one, uh, listeners, it is not about March Madness because I don't follow uh, basketball at all, uh, other than the fact that I do know that March Madness happens. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I do, <laughs> okay. I do know that. Um, but All right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sorry, listeners. I'm just silly and goofy tonight, uh, or rather today, because you, know, you don't know that we record this tonight before, and other than me telling you. But uh, let's go to something else that's uh, deceitful, I guess. Uh, a Hollywood actor and filmmaker has opened up about falling victim to a catfishing scheme by his own dad. And honestly, Devin, whenever I saw this, I, I had to go and Google the person to make sure that he was a real person because I was like, surely this is like some bogus media that somebody just fabricated, but he's a real person. Uh, when he was 20 years old, James Morosini was flattered when he received a Facebook message from an attractive young girl named Becca, which you should have known because Becca just seems like that's always like the catfish go-to. Yes. <laughs> uh, it wasn't long before the pair talked every day, sharing their love for all the same interests that eventually led to a cyber romance. However, after investing much of his himself into Becca, James soon found out he was being catfished by his own dad. And the way he found out was because of the email address. There was something about the account that that was registered with Becca had the same email address as James's dad. Uh, James, who appeared on HBO's The Sex Lives of College Girls, spoke to the Daily Beast about his unique experience, which he has now turned into a film. Uh, really interesting film, actually, from what I read about it. James and his dad reunited during therapy. And surprisingly, James believes that the experience actually drew them closer together. Um, <laughs> I don't um, think being catfished by my dad would draw me closer to him. I just like, just talk to me as like a real, just who you are. Like, yeah, that's, that's a, <laughs> I don't want to have, oh my God. I couldn't I mean, imagine I can having, I was just going to say, I can just imagine like the dad having to go through all this work to go find pictures of like stuff. Yes. They were like, cause I mean, the article says they were sexting and all this kind of stuff. I'm just oh like, Oh my God. That's okay. Oh my God. <laughs> if you need to do all that to get closer to your son, there's something wrong. Like, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, you know, new age parenting, Devin. 
Oh my! And they say the problem are the kids. I don't know about <laughs> that. <laughs> Ooh, that's yeah. I don't know if we can come back for that. I don't like to write people off. Oh, that's just yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's just something you definitely don't do. I mean, just instead of doing the catfishing, just start with therapy. Yes, there you go. <laughs> that one. Just go to therapy. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll move on. That is a crazy story. I'm sorry. And they made it a film, so they're going to make some money off of it. So. I, I know. That's the other thing. And I think um, Patton Oswalt, uh, Patton Oswalt plays the uh, dad in the film. So Jesus. That is just... <laughs> so it's going to get some attention because Patton Oswalt, he's, you know, he's relevant. Or not relevant, but he's at least a name. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I honestly thought I had heard it all. Good. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to wrap up our, our, our quick hits here with um, some March Madness updates. Um, March is here. It is maddening. It's madness going on. There are upsets everywhere. So here's a rundown of the biggest upsets that have happened so far in the tournament. So first up, the first upset of the week goes to number 11, Michigan, the 11 seed who knocked off the six seed Colorado State. They beat them 75 to 63. Then the next upset, which is a big one that pretty much busted my bracket, was the 12 seed Richmond taking out the five seed Iowa. And that's, this is actually the 52nd time that a number 12 seed has taken out a number five seed since the tournament expanded to 64 teams in 1985. And so those are two pretty big upsets, but the biggest one of the week was number 15 seed St. Peter's, the Peacocks, knocking off number two Kentucky in overtime. And so for St. Peter's, it was their very first NCAA tournament victory, and what a victory it was to be knocking off Kentucky uh, in overtime. And to wrap it up, number 11 Notre Dame, uh, knocked off uh, number six seed Alabama. This is the 10th time in 11 years that a first four survivor because Notre Dame actually had to play a play-in game just to get into the tournament. And they knocked off Alabama. This is the 10th time in 11 years that a first four survivor has won its next game. So as of this recording, I had in here that there were only two brackets, but it looks like Illinois pulled off a very, very close victory. So then now there are only... There's only one perfect bracket out of 17.35 million brackets. After two days of basketball, there's one perfect one left. Very likely that's going to get busted too. And eventually we'll be back to zero as we do. There has yet to be a perfect bracket. And I don't know how many years of doing this tournament, but they've yet to have a perfect one. You know, I think about, all the money that goes into these, into like sports betting and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And whenever you get an upset like this, I mean, you just got to be like, man, like just damn, hope you didn't <laughs> just bet too much money on that game. Uh, Cause you know, and, and it's usually, th- and these are the types of games where people bet so much because there's, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's definitely an underdog and there's a dominant team or whatever. And there's, there's even a lot of data and statistics that prove that this team is going to be the one that wins, but right. that's what an upset is, you know? So listeners, hopefully you didn't put your money on uh, these teams that lost. Uh, hopefully, um, if you've got some um, fantasy leagues out there, y'all are sitting pretty doing well. But 
Uh, if you're like Devin, you know, apparently you got busted out and, you know, only one perfect person out there. <laughs> and it's so funny. Every year I think, man, this is the year. I got it. I'm, I'm going to get it. Not quite. Still got work now, to do. Do you do the, do you, do you, do you bet or you just have your brackets like with, you know, coworkers or friends? Yeah, I do it just like that. I don't, okay. I don't put any money into it because for that reason you just said, it is very unpredictable. <laughs> uh, so I, yeah, I don't have the, the wherewithal to be able to do that, <laughs> have that kind of money on the line. So I just dibble and dabble with it. I don't, the most I'll do is I'll put in, for a fantasy league, I will pay in for that. I feel like I have more control over it because I'm picking the players, obviously. But um, something like this, yeah, it's just too much. Too much unpredictable unpredictability for me. There you <laughs> go, <laughs> listeners. Take it from Devin. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> don't. At least fill out a bracket. It is fun. Even if you don't know, that's, you know, typically, honestly, though, the folks who don't know, like haven't watched college basketball, if you go do a bracket, a lot of times you'll do better because you're just picking based on colors or whatever, but it actually sometimes <laughs> can work out. <laughs> hey, well, maybe so, if you don't know, you should go back because you might have better odds. <laughs> you never know. You never know. But we'll go ahead and wrap up the show here. So we're going to take our very last break and when we come back, we're going to give you a look forward as to what is upcoming on the show. We got some great episodes coming, so make sure you stick around after the break and hear what's coming to you. So we'll be right back and stick with us. Would you like to contribute to a scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, become a monthly patron. Go to blackagendapod.com and click the donate tab or click donate under the timestamps as you're listening to the podcast. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, so welcome back. So as always, we like to wrap the show up by giving you a look forward as to what is upcoming on the show. So first up, you can look forward to hearing me and Adrian again here at the Black Agenda on Tuesday, March 22nd. That's going to be our next regular episode. This time, we're going to be talking about the gender pay gap and how we can raise wages for women and female workers. So make sure you tune in for that one. It's going to be another interesting episode, another great topic. We know this is something that affects you know, everyone, every woman who's in the workforce. So make sure you tune in to hear our conversation about raising wages for women. That is going to, going to be coming to you on Tuesday, March 22nd. So then after that, Our next episode after the 22nd is going to be coming to you on March 26th, and that is going to be weekly roundup number 10. We'll be right back here with you with more quick hits, more quick updates, and more news from around the country. So make sure you tune in to hear me and Adrian give you our take on what's happening in the world around you. So again, Tuesday, March 22nd is our next regular episode. Saturday, March 26th is weekly roundup number 10. So make sure you tune in for both of those. And so before we go, we appreciate you listening to us. We love the fact that you download our show. You maybe even share it with your friends and family, but there actually are some other ways you can help us out. And Age is going to let you know how you can help us. 
Yeah, listeners, I like to talk about this because I talk so much about what we're trying to do. And like I was talking to Devin before we started recording this episode, I'm so excited about our vision and our potential and what our future is going to be with the Black Agenda and its many subsidiaries. And you're able to be a part of that, listeners. You're able to be a part of what we're building here. You're able to be a part of the mission, the message of the Black Agenda podcast and what we're building. And all you got to do is just donate, you know, simply $5, whatever you want to do per month. That's what you can be invested in to say that you were part of the people that got the Black Agenda off the ground. Um, you were part of the one that, you know, got the Future Presidents podcast to be nationally recognized. I mean, that's what you're going to be able to say. You'll get a button, a T-shirt or something like that to commemorate for. But in all seriousness, go to our website. It's just BlackAgendaPod.com. Or while you're listening, scroll down to the donate under the timestamps and click there. When you go there, it's going to show our patron page where there's multiple levels to give. And there's multiple things you get from us as you give. There's even some merchandise. So like I said, go to our website, blackageinthepod.com, or scroll down in the timestamps and click the donate button and start giving. The other thing we like to do is mention a charity of the month. And for this month, we've been talking about the Common Ground Foundation. They are empowering and enlifting youth from high potential communities to become future leaders. They're founded by entertainer, entertainer Common and his mom. They are a holistic curriculum that encourages youth to achieve academic excellence while inspiring them to realize their dreams and create an impact in the world. They always say that their youth come to them as dreamers, but they emerge as dreamers and believers. So really cool organization. They have programs that focus on character development, civic engagement, health and wellness, technology, generational wealth, entrepreneurship, career exploration, creative expression, and even leadership. So thank you, Common and his mom, for getting that going. Exactly. So make sure you give to them. Make sure you help us out. We will both appreciate the help. Uh, Before we go, we want to let you know you can keep up with us on social media. So make sure you find us at Black Agenda Pod is our handle. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just search at Black Agenda Pod. And so um, the other thing you can do now is you can read and keep up with the news on blackagendapod.com. So if you go to blackagendapod.com forward slash news, you'll now find a series of articles written by our very talented interns here at the Black Agenda Podcast. So make sure you go to blackagendapod.com forward slash news. Check that out. Give us some feedback. We're just trying to grow this show here and, and give you the news in some different ways. So you can not only listen to it, but you can read it. And again, that's blackagendapod.com forward slash news. And so for me and Adrian, we have really appreciated and enjoyed bringing you the news this week. It's another fantastic episode of our weekly roundup series. We'll be back with you on Tuesday, March 22nd for our regular episode about raising wages for women. And then after that, we'll be right back here on Saturday, March 26th for weekly roundup number 10. So until then, We'll catch you next time. Mm